Okay, y'all. It has been a while. Every time I come back from vacation, I always have this just this slight little tickle of fear. Can I remember how to preach? Um, it's tradition to give you snapshots of our family vacation, uh, so I'm going to do that. Uh, this past, the past four vacations, we take ours during July, uh, I worked on my doctorate. So this July, this past vacation, I did absolutely nothing. <laughs> nothing. Uh, no alarm clock to get up in the morning, no daily schedule to maintain, no long to-do list, no somewhere to be, no someone to meet, no crisis to walk into, uh, no reading and responding to my emails, but really not much has changed there. I don't really read or respond to my emails, as you know. Uh, and perhaps most freeing, I broke up with my phone for a whole month, <laughs> despite its pathetic pleadings to get back with me. I firmly and dispassionately said, you know, we really need to see other people this month. And so my phone was done, and it was wonderful. Uh, well, because of our life situation right now, we have five children, um, and we will always have five children. Uh, we didn't go to any of the top 10 most expensive vacation spots in the world. Do you know what those are? I'm just going to list a couple of them for you. I'm going to give you the top 10 just so you know, because some of you might have been there this summer, and if you were, good for you. Number 10 was Paris, the 10th most expensive. There is a hotel there that charges $26,000 a night. Now, Evan Ilizada stayed there while he was in Paris this summer. He's going to kill me. He did not. Fuji is made up of 332 islands. Did you know that? To have one villa for a night costs several thousand dollars a night on one of those islands and one of those villas. New York City is number eight. Apparently, you can eat a $1,000 Sunday in New York City. Uh, number seven is the British Virgin Islands, because that's just where rich Brits go. Hardy har for them. All right, Bora Bora Island. An average stay at Bora Bora Island is $800 a day. Uh, the Secheli Islands in the Indian Ocean, y'all know where that is? That's number five. Uh, Tuscany, Italy, number four. Okay, Dubai, a Middle Eastern hotspot with lots of oil wealth, is number three. And then here's my favorite. Number two, Musha's Cay. Musha Cay, it's one of the outer islands of the Bahamas. There are 11 outer islands out there. David Copperfield thinks that the fountain of living water is in one of them. You must rent the entire island of Musha Cay for $40,000 a night. But don't sweat it. You can bring 11 of your closest friends with you. And you'll never guess what's number one. I mean, just try to take a guess, anybody. Ah! Yes! No, number one is Oslo, Norway, the capital city of Norway. It's the most expensive city in the world. Tourist industry charges 70% more than the world averages. So, Jeff, what did y'all do this summer? Well, we tubed the Comal <laughs> with the bakers. We had a redneck vacation. If you have not gone to the Comal, you are missing out. It is a spring. It's cold. It's a spring-fed river. Uh, every time we go there, I say to everybody, and I say it out loud, I cannot believe we're in Texas. It's unbelievable. It's clear. You look like you're in a tropical island, uh, except for the rednecks next to you. It's a wonderful, wonderful time. Uh, we ate at Pat's Place, which we do every time we're in New Braunfels, best burgers around. 
We also kayak the Brazos. There's a rental place under Buzzer Billy's. Did you all know that? Uh, we had a lot of fun kayaking. Um, there was an epic race that went on, though, in the kayaking at about 10.33 a.m. Uh, it was a civil war, a Hatton civil war. It was a family feud. It was a battle of the sexes. Ty and I were in one kayak. Nancy and Belle were in the other, and it was a race to get back. Who won? I'm not going to tell you, but I am going to tell you this. The good guys won. And last but not least, we went to Schlitterbahn for our 20th year in a row. I mean, I, I might as well just have stock in that place. We love Schlitterbahn. One of, the, one of the most favorite things for Nancy and I is taking our kids from when they were babies on up to now in their 20s uh, is just having so much fun together. I mean, riding the rides and laughing and cutting up and telling jokes and then bantering back and forth about what happened on this ride and that ride and eating all kinds of foods that you don't eat the rest of the year and we just pig out on it. Wonderful, wonderful time. We love that place. And then, of course, what we ended with was Pat's Place. Uh, this year I got the, um, well, I got the double burger with mushrooms and Swiss cheese, and then I topped it off with bluebell ice cream and apple pie. It was wonderful. I also got like a big old deal of like french fries. They thought this was for the table, and I said, uh-uh. <laughs> That's mine. Get your hands off. All right, now some of you also might be wondering, uh, well, what else did you do, Jeff? If I can do this. Yep. This is what I did. You ready? Okay, so I uh, read Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. I read Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, some dude from the 1600s. I read Law and Gospel uh, by Walther. Uh, Studies and Dogmatics, Burkhauer's Faith and Sanctification. Um, Herman Bavinck has two, he has four really, but I was very interested in uh, Original Sin and its work in the Christian's life, so I wanted to explore those. And then, then there was Burkauer. He has a whole book on sin. Can you believe? Look how big that thing is. That was unbelievable. And then the last thing was, well, no, this is one of them, too. Had many, many issues. If you need a, a systematic theology, just a one volume, get Horton's Systematic Theology, because it blends biblical theology and systematics together. And then, and then what I did, which was really probably the most life-giving thing I did is I translated Galatians and I translated Romans 5 through 8 and came alive doing so. Uh, I must tell you before you right now that yes, something is wrong with me. I couldn't stop reading. Uh, Nancy would come. She worked on Tuesdays and Thursday mornings and she would leave for work and I'd be sitting on the couch and when she came back, I'd be sitting in the same place on the same couch with the same slouch and the same stupid look on my face. I hadn't eaten, hadn't drinking, didn't even go to the bathroom. I was just fixated. The dog was even worried about me. So what was going on? Here's what was going on. I actually rediscovered something. Incredibly powerful for me. Dr. Morton Lloyd-Jones once said, in the ministry there are faucets, and there are reservoirs. Here's what a faucet does. A faucet is water in, water out. It's, it's reading for ministry. It's reading 
to preach. It's reading to teach. It's reading to lead. It's reading because you have to produce in ministry. Water in, water out. The water just passes right by you. And then there's being a reservoir. <clears throat> and a reservoir reads for life. For life. You don't read because you have to. You read for your life. And what happens is, is you become a reservoir. The water doesn't go in and go out. The water doesn't pass by you. The water fills you up. The water refreshes you. The water puts you back together again. And when that happens, you can have, because you're a reservoir, you can have all kinds of streams of ministry flowing out of you. And it won't completely deplete you. And so here's what I vow to you this fall is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read more. And I'm going to translate. I'm going to make time for it. And Dorothy, you're going to make me do that for your sake and for my sake. So what are we going to do this fall, y'all? What are we going to do? Well, here's the deal. I spent close to 250 books, dollars worth of books on preaching for David right before I left for vacation. I thought, David's a slam dunk. Who's going to pick... Who's going to pick Elijah over David? Who would do that? Well, we put it to a vote, and evidently you did. <clears throat> evidently you voted for Elijah two to one. It was a landslide. If it was a political election, it would have been a landslide. It would have been all over the paper. Elijah, hands down, that's what you want. And you got to ask yourself, though, I kept asking, why Elijah? I'd asked everybody. I was like, why? Dorothy would text me, just a heads up. In my vacation, just a heads up, Elijah's really pulling ahead. I'm like, what? Why are you picking Elijah? I think there's interesting. I asked that to the deacons and the elders on Wednesday night. Here's what Walt Ford said. Walt Ford said, listen, Jeff, Elijah is like a wizard. He's Israel's Gandalf. And he, he creates and he lives in a world of wonders and a world of close encounters, a world of magic. Right? And then some of you, I like that one. That's the one I'm going to believe. Others was, no, everybody knows about David. Nobody knows about Elijah. They're just curious and want to know about Elijah. I don't think that was y'all. It was the Gandalf, wasn't it? The wizard. The wizard of Israel. So that's what we're going to do. So this morning, we are going to look uh, at kings. We're going to get the context of this world of close encounters. So I want you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read 1 Kings chapter 3, 1 through 15. It's actually the whole chapter that we'll cover, but I'm not going to make you stand for that. We've got two readers. <laughs> two readers. This is, this is pretty, you know, y'all could like do every other verse if you wanted. All right. First Kings chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places. 
however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of, of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for, there was the great, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated, y'all. All right, so Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. Would you fill us with your spirit? Um, would you grant the experience of the text to be our experience now? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here's the deal. We've got 18 sermons in the Elijah series, two intro sermons focusing on Solomon, uh, King Solomon. Why? Well, first, because you didn't want King David, so I'm not going to give him to you. Second, is we're going to introduce the world of Elijah. Third, we're waiting for folks to get back from their summer. I know that's why we're going to two services next week. So this week and next week, we're looking at two intro ser sermons to give us the world of the text. Uh, when you read the text, we're meant to re-experience the text just like the original participants. That's how God's Word works. And so we're entering into the world. We're going to see the sights, smell the smells, taste the tastes, Feel the anxiety, feel the, feel the wonder, have faith generated, all within the wonders and the mysteries of the text. There will be seven specific Elijah sermons this fall. Uh, that's all the texts there are, seven, and we're going to do seven sermons on them. Uh, plus, there will be, additionally, four sermons on despair and depression. We're going to start with Elijah's, because he has one. He has that place. And then we're going to have three sermons that are going to address that painful place and that painful experience. Then we're going to have four sermons on King Ahab because he's Elijah's nemesis. He is Saruman to Gandalf. He is 
He's not Moby Dick's character, <laughs> right? This is, this is Elijah's nemesis. These two are the two chief wizards in the land. And so we're going to, the text, I kept asking, you know, there are so many kings. Why does the text spend so much time on Ahab? Well, that's why. So we're going to spend time on Ahab too. Uh, then we're going to do one sermon on Naaman because he just might be my favorite character in all the Bible, and that's just what we want to do because I'm the preacher. Uh, finally, we're going to have one sermon on Elisha, his servant, and they're surrounded by, we've mentioned this when we were looking at Revelation, they're surrounded by the Syrian armor that wants, army that wants their heads, and yet there's a, a superior army that surrounds them, and we're going to take a look at that passage because it's just flat out fun, that passage is, and that's how we'll end Elijah. Now, there might be within, we get towards Advent, we might do something on Advent, or we might just keep blowing through. Uh, I'm thinking in the spring, I'm not sure what to do in the spring, uh, really not, but right now this is what we're up to. So the fall is taken care of. So here's the question for today. What is the world of Elijah like? What is the world of Elijah? Here's the answer. It's a world of high places. Look at verse 2. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Then drop down to verse 4. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was a great high place. What we're going to find out in the culture and the context and the world of kings, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, a king, a king is a good king or a king is a bad king depending upon what they do with the high places. The high places. What are high places? Here's the answer and then we're going to unpack it. High places are where you and I and an ancient person went to find salvation. In other words, it's where you and I try to fill, as Augustine would say, a God-shaped hole and a God-sized hole in your soul. When Adam and Eve separated from God what was cut and carved into the fabric and the structure of their very DNA was a God-shaped, God-sized hole in the foundations of their being. The ancient world had high places everywhere. They had high places in homes and fields and valleys and hills and mountains. They had high places in caves and shrines and altars and temples. They had high places at Asherah poles engraved images and stones that were like portals or gateways into another world. They had carns. They had magical hot spots and officially sanctioned state places of high places. The Tower of Babel was a high place. It's the most famous and legendary high place in all the ancient world. Not just the Bible talked about the Tower of Babel. All the surrounding <laughs> records of ancient civilizations mentioned this incredible tower, high place. Why were high places everywhere? 
High places were everywhere because the ancient person actually has it up on you and me, the modern and postmodern, whatever we are today. Everybody argues, are we still modern or postmodern? I don't care. The ancient person has it on us because the ancient person knew, everyone in that world knew, everyone in this world knew that anything and everything can be a high place. Anything and everything can be something or someone that we try to find salvation from, that we try to stuff this God-shaped, God-sized hole in the soul. And the ancient person knew this. The ancient person had this existential ache. And they didn't ignore the ache. They went after it. They went to fill it. They went to satisfy it. They went to try to find and fill their salvation. They knew that salvation could be sought anywhere, not just in a church. In the ancient world, there were high places for fertility. Why? Because children were everything. Children were believed to actually have the power to save you. How? Well, women thought so. A woman in the ancient world had to have a child in order to have a life worth living, in order to get the love of her husband, in order to have meaning and value. And a man needed a child. A man needed a child for honor. A man needed a child for security and wealth. A man needed a child for his name that would continue. In order for a man to have a worthy life, he needed a child. He needed children. To be infertile in the ancient world was a death. That's why infertility is a major theme in the Bible. It's a painful, painful place. It's no different today, is it? Today, fathers make their sons high places. And they become that dad in the stands. Today, teenagers make boyfriends and girlfriends high places, and so they get sexually involved, and they smother each other. We would call it, what, I guess today, codependent. Um, they have an unhealthy way of relating. Uh, and then in the process, they become someone they don't even like, and they don't know what to do, and so then they walk around day feeling guilty and shameful and just don't know how to get out of it. Today, 20-something, 30-something, and now 40-something singles make marriage a high place. Just longing for that someone who will love me. Longing for that someone who will heal me. Longing for that someone, right, who will complete me. And then for most guys, it's longing to finally have officially sanctioned sex, right? I want you to notice the connection here, though, between high places and worship. Did you see that? Worship happens at high places. That's what's happening in this text. Why? Because whatever we look to for salvation, guess what? We worship it. We adore it. We, we love it. We, we celebrate it, and we sing about it, and we serve it, and we obey it. And then, and then we tell others about it. We evangelize. Every human being worships. Not just those who go to church. 
Cary Grant underwent LSD therapy in 1959. You know that I just started poking around just a little bit. I didn't want to go too far into this stuff. But famous, there are many movie industry people that have done LSD therapy. Here are some of the names. James Coburn, Stanley Kubrick, the late Stanley Kubrick, Jack Nicholson. There's a famous writer, I don't know how to pronounce her name, but Anais Nin. There's a famous musician, Andre Previn. Well, why did they do LSD therapy? You know what the answer was? To heal themselves, to try to heal themselves, to try to save themselves. In fact, in an interview after his LSD therapy, Grant said, I've had my ego stripped away. All the sadness and vanities were torn away. In other words, I've been saved. I've been healed. Grant then goes on after his therapy to celebrate LSD therapy and to tell as many people as he can about its powerful effects. In other words, what did he do? He worshipped. Atheism is a high place. It's a place of worship. Islam is a high place. Buddhism is a high place. Hinduism is a high place. Any alternative salvation is a high place. It's a place of worship. Serial sex, whether it's heterosexual or same sex, whether it's pornography or actual engagement, is a high place. It's a place of worship. Every one of us, y'all. So when I say this, please hear me. If you're hearing me preach for the first time, you're saying, well, that dude is pretty, like, in your face. I know. I do do that. I'm working on that, but I don't know if I'll change. Every one of us in this room right now have high places in our life. And maybe mostly me. We have several If you're thinking I don't have any high places, I love and I worship the Lord. Your high place is you. Your own spiritual goodness. Your own spiritual effort and abilities and righteousness and comparabilities with others, your own sense of righteousness and your own sense of holiness and your own sense of keeping your list to your rules and your laws. If you are concerned about life change, please listen to me. The Bible is very, very clear. And King's is very, very clear. There is no life change without your high places tumbling down. You can try as hard as you want to obey and keep commands and do the law and do whatever you're doing to try to fix yourself. But if your high place is still fixed there, you will never change. In fact, all your obedience and all your effort and all your work is doing nothing more than worshiping at your high place. So here's what Redeemer should be like, and this is what I, I, I believe 
I believe we are coming, becoming this kind of church. I really do. I know that we're slowly, I'm slowly becoming this kind of person. I know our family's slowly becoming this kind of family. I know our friendships that I know of all of y'all. We're slowly, slowly becoming this kind of people. Here's what we're becoming. Redeemer or any church should create an unshockable community. Unshockable. And what I mean by that is this, that we learn together, together. We learn to discover and intelligently identify our high places. And we do so together and we do so with compassion for one another because we're all in it together. It's what it means to be a human being is that you come into this world with a God-shaped, God-sized hole that is filled with high places. We also become an unshockable community in this way. We learn to unplug from our high places together. We learn to see these things tumble. And we do so with friendship. And we do so with encouragement. And we do so with prayer. And we do so bearing it with one another. And we do so together as a community. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what kind of community that is? Talk about people starving for that kind of community. They either come to the church and get judged or fixed. Not many people come to the church to be loved with the Hesed love that David was loved and is put back together again and has the actual God-shaped, God-sized hole in their soul can only be filled by hesed. Do you know that word in the, in the original language has about 50 English translations because no one can figure out the word, but yet the word is used probably more than any other word in the Old Testament, and the word talks about how God relates to a sinner, and nobody can fully define it. Nobody can fully get their finger on it. Nobody can catch its pulse. It's too big. It's too far-reaching. It's too glorious and too wondrous. It's too life-giving. So they just call it hesed. Something about his love. I tried. I tried to find something that would do it, and I just couldn't do it. But can you imagine a community that's built around hesed? One of the things that happens when I get away is I actually have space created in my mind and my heart and my spirit, and I just have this tendency to put my head down and grind. <laughs> I think my next tattoo is going to be endure right here, so when you see it, don't be shocked. It's going to have an arrow because that's kind of the way I live my life. Just endure. Just endure. Just endure. But this summer, I got a little space. And when I got a little space, all of a sudden, I started looking and, and looking at the people around me. And I started looking at the people on the Comal and at Schlitterbahn. I started looking at my own family. And I started looking at where we are. We, right here in Waco, are now one of the fastest growing places in Texas. And I speak the language. 
I know the culture. I know about Friday night lights. I know the high places. You know the high places in Waco. You are here to be a missionary in Waco. Right here around us, doing ordinary life with ordinary people that you talk the language to. If you're a professor, there's your people. If you love Friday night lights, these are your people. Your neighbors whose marriages are struggling, your, the families whose kids are struggling, these are our people. They're right here. Can you imagine an unshockable community for them to learn, to see the high places in their life and in their marriage and in their parenting and their kids and to see Hesed bring them down? You can sign me up for that. How do we create this kind of unshockable community? And what do we mean? I mean, an unshockable community. What's it doing? Well, it's wrestling. We're wrestling together, honestly, with the knowledge of good and evil. Do you see verse 9? Isn't that interesting? That's the same thing that was said in the garden. The tree that was forbidden, Solomon's asking for. Well, how do you there? Solomon is asking to know and understand if you're a Protestant tradition, sin and grace. If you're Luther, law, gospel. That's why we have that class up there. If you're from Keller's tribe, a gospel life. He's asking for wisdom. It's not any kind of wisdom. It's the wisdom that understands evil and good, that understands what it looks like to be in sin and understand Hesed at the same time. It's a gospel life, it's, if you've been around here, it's this. This is our language. Learning to build your messy life around Jesus and his salvation. Same thing. Same exact thing. That's the kind of wisdom that's being asked for here. Or if you're Paul, the Apostle Paul, you would call it walking in the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit. Or you could say living well amidst the ruins of sin. I just made that one up. Look at verse 9. Just look at it. The knowledge of sin and grace is the wisdom Solomon is asking for. The proof that he got it is what happens in the next story. It's, the, it's one of the most legendary, famous case studies in law of exhibiting Solomon's wisdom ever done. And for some of you, it's your favorite story in the Bible. This is the wisdom he's given. He's given the wisdom of sin and grace. He's given the wisdom of a gospel life. How do you obtain it? How do you get that kind of wisdom? How do you live artfully and skillfully with your messy life and the ruins of sin all around you in a halfway decent way? Here's the answer. Are you ready? Don't miss it. This is a world of high places. The only way we walk in wisdom, the only way you obtain wisdom is through close encounters. Close encounters. Verse 5, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon. I'm shocked how all those books I bought, none of them highlighted that 
the rock that was thrown into the pool of life and created any living ripple that went anywhere in this passage starts there. There is wisdom because the Lord appeared to Solomon. There is a sense in which he gets completed and knows Hesed because the Lord appeared to Solomon. There's a reason why he has a gospel life. There's a reason why he's growing in sin and grace because the Lord appeared to Solomon. This is the epicenter. This sets the tone for the whole book. The rest of Elijah will be power encounters, close encounters of either high places or the Lord appearing. And close encounters changes everything. Some of you are thinking there has to be more involved here. I mean, that, Jeff, come on. That's just way too simple. Where are the discipleship manuals? Where's How to Train God's, How to Train Children, Your Children God's Way? That horrible book. Or what is the, what is the, how's that book go? Parenting God's Way or something like that. I mean, what is it? How to grow, grow your kids God's way. Okay, great. Uh, we think there must be something more that's too simple. Notice where Solomon first worships. He first worships not only at an unauthorized high place, but he worships at the greatest high place in the land. And watch what happens after his close encounter with God. Yes, he becomes wise. But his worship changes. Verse 15, and Solomon awoke, then he came to Jerusalem. Uh-oh, whoa, whoa, he's going to Jerusalem. He's leaving a high place. He's no longer at Gibeon. Why? Because the Lord just appeared to him. He came to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. In other words, he worshiped. And he offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Do not miss that. Whenever the Lord appears, there's always a feast. Whenever the Lord appears, there's always a celebration. Whenever the Lord appears, there's always life. Whenever the Lord appears, there's always singing and dancing. Wherever the Lord appears, there's always adult beverages. There's always a feast and a celebration and joy and laughter and going down water slides and joking and cutting up and bantering back and forth and racing and good competition. Solomon's worship changed. His life changed at the very foundation. Now, some of you are thinking, but Jeff, you don't know me. You don't know my struggles. You don't know my sin. You're right, I don't. But if you talk to me, I might. And sometimes, that's all it takes. It's talking to somebody talking to a friend, talking to your spouse, talking to your child. Notice where God appears to Solomon. Did you notice where he does? This is phenomenal. Verse 4, and the king went to Gibeon, the great high place. Verse 5, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon. God appears to Solomon at his high place. The Lord appeared to Solomon in the middle of his mess. So I get that I don't know you, 
and I don't know your struggles, and I don't know your sins, but I get that. God comes for you in your mess, not apart from it. And some of you are thinking, but God doesn't appear to me, Jeff. He doesn't appear to me despite all my prayers and all my pleadings for him and for his help. I know that's painful. I have felt that too. You desperately want relief. You desperately want relief, but there is no relief despite your prayers, despite your pleadings. That's, a, that's called suffering. That's why there's words like endurance in the Bible and words like patience because you're waiting for relief. I get that. But notice how God appears to, so, to Solomon. So first it's where he appears. Where did he appear? In his mess. But notice how he appears. So how does he actually appear? I mean, what is this? Is this like, hey, I'm behind door number one, door number two, door number three. Let's play a game. Is it if you work really hard, I'll appear... Is it, um, if you find this secret spiritual technique, you can leverage me out to appear? What is it? Notice what happens. How God appears to Solomon. Verse 5, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. Now, here it comes. Notice how God appears to Solomon. Verse 5, and God said, God appeared by speaking. God shows up in his word. God does not appear apart from his word. God appears in, with, through, by his word. So folks, I mean, if you want to encounter God, if you want to experience God, if you want a close encounter, you don't have to go out to Mount Carmel. We have a Mount Carmel in Waco. You don't have to beat yourself up into an aesthetic and spiritual frenzy. He comes to high places. You and your high place go to his word. We experience God in his word. All right, y'all, I knew this was going to be a longer one. Sorry. Some of you are thinking, I need God. I need close encounters with God, though. I mean, right now, you're like, I I need him, and I I want that close encounter. Here's the deal. I want you to look. If you have a Bible, if you don't, you're just going to look at it. I'm going to tell you about it, but this is is how we're ending. It's the legendary case of the two prostitutes. Anyone familiar with that story? Some of you familiar with that story? And kind of get a game. If you're familiar, you kind of raise your hand just so I kind of know. Okay, I'm going to tell it. All right, the, the story is this. There are two prostitutes, and they both have children about two, three days apart, but they both have sons. Interesting. And they're both prostitutes. Interesting that this is the story that's being told, right? One of the sons dies in the night. The prostitute who loses her son, though, swaps her son, her dead son, with the other prostitute's living son. And then she did it in the night. No one knew. So can you imagine the chaos and the terror the next morning? Can you imagine, ladies, 
Just put yourself there. Whose son is whose? What just happened? What? I mean, I can't even imagine the chaos. Well, it comes before the king, and Solomon's listening to the tale. In verse 24, this is, what he, this is his response. And the king said, bring me a sword. Now, a sword means this. When a king brings a sword, he, it's a symbol of justice. He is coming now to execute justice. This is not violence for violence sake. This is justice. Our modern sensibilities freak out, but I guarantee you an ancient Israelite did not. Here's what happens. Divide, Solomon says, the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. We freak out, but they didn't. Why? Because they knew Israel. An Israelite knew that there was a debt, a sin debt that required the forfeiture of the firstborn son of a family because a family had a sin debt, and that sin debt required a payment, and the firstborn son in Israel was always forfeited for the life of the family. They got that way back with Abraham and Isaac. They knew about that in the Passover when it was God going through and he took out the firstborn sons of, of Egypt because they smothered their children in the night like the one mother. They wouldn't turn to the Lord's substitute son, the lamb. They wanted to be their own savior and deal with their own sins, and so they did. But Israel, ingrained in the fiber of their being, is that there must be a replacement son. There must be the forfeiture of a firstborn son for the life of the family. The false mom says, divide him, cut him in two, tear him asunder. And the true mom, the true mom is willing to lose her son to save him. The true mom is willing to sacrifice herself save her son. The message of 1 Kings is this, y'all, and the message for us in the city of Waco and for all of us is this. The high places, the false gods come to you and me and they scream, divide her. Divide him. And when we worship there, they do. They tear us asunder. They break us down. They make us less human but the true God, the living God, divide my son instead. Close encounters happen there. Hesed. Whatever it means, happens there. The filling, the completing, the putting of you back together again happens there. The Lord appears there as a church, as a people, 
That's where we're going. 